Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue in this seven-part letter series. We come to the letter to the fourth church, Thyatira, and we've already heard from the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, he who is the first and the last, who died and came to life, who has a sharp double-edged sword and now is referred to as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. He sees all and with swift justice has words of both commendation and condemnation for this ancient church. The Lord affirms the works of His people but also rebukes them for various sins of idolatry and immorality. Let those of us who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says of the churches. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation." unless they repent of her works. Now I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come." The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, now give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Father, we would ask this evening that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The first church at Ephesus was faithful and had resisted false teaching and yet had abandoned their first love. In contrast, this church in Thyatira was strong in love and faith. There was no rebuke to the second church, Smyrna, who was merely encouraged to persevere in their poverty and their persecution. 
but in an apparent attempt to avoid persecution. This fourth church, Thyatira, followed the seductive ways of a false prophetess, embracing a teaching similar to that afflicting the third church in Pergamum. We live now in an age of prosperity, where people may pursue pleasure and maybe have no higher aim than to avoid pain and suffering. People today are told that you can be Christian and gratify your desires without shame, suffer no affliction, and to that promise, people will gladly yield to a God whose only goal for you is your personal happiness. The church of Thyatira attempted 2,000 years ago is a little different than what we experience today. We hear many voices luring us to merge our faith with the world without cost, with no expectation for sacrifice, a redefinition of what it means to be Christian, and the false promise of comfort and ease in this life, to compromise with the world, is to deny the cross, to forsake the reality of sin, and to ignore our desperate need of rescue from seduction. We need to hear the words of our Lord concerning the danger of seduction, the discipline of seduction, and our deliverance from seduction. The all-seeing Lord affirms His church as He begins His letter, I know your works, your love, and your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. They had much to commend by the Lord. And no doubt, that church who first heard it was glad to hear this affirmation. But the next words were painful. The risen Lord has this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. In our day, tolerance is a virtue. But tolerance is not what the Lord expected. Rather, He expected an intolerance not only among those who didn't follow the teachings of Jezebel, but its leaders who appeared to be tolerating her and allowing her to prophesy without confrontation. Who was she, this Jezebel? Perhaps a prominent wife of a leader, perhaps a gifted teacher, and obviously someone who had great influence over the church. It seems apparent that her name is symbolic. No Jew in his right mind would name his daughter Jezebel, the wicked foreign queen of King Ahab who led Israel into Baal worship, the only one whom Elijah seemed to fear because of her ruthless ways. She calls herself a prophetess is guilty of false teaching, seducing the Lord's servants both into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. So why does the Lord refer to her false teaching as seduction? Well, seduction is appealing to people's desires to lure them into compromising their integrity, their conviction. It's a, an attempt to wear down one's resolve to weaken their moral character. Think of Potiphar's wife, who sought to seduce young Joseph, impressed him day after day, and his steely resolve is summarized by his great response, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Later in this book of Revelation, we will 
see two images of oppression and, and temptation against the church. The beast who oppresses and crushes God's people. But then there's also the prostitute who seduces the church of Christ into compromise and immorality. It appears that this Jezebel was teaching God's people that it was okay to go along with the world, to compromise and still be acceptable to God. Now, we know from history that the city of Thyatira had very powerful trade guilds, coppersmiths, tanners, leather workers, dyers, woolen and linen workers worked there in abundance. And they had very influential guilds. And to be a part of the guild, it was expected that you conform to the Greco-Roman ways. And it would have been very, very hard for believers to make a living without belonging to a guild. And there would have been great pressure as participants in that guild to associate with the common idolatrous practices. The guilds would hold frequent banquets, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, and oftentimes this feasting would degenerate into sexual immorality. Perhaps Jezebel was taking Paul's teaching regarding the freedom of conscience to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and skewing the believer's freedom to overlook the drift into immorality, merging perhaps the false teaching of Greek religion, that what one did in the body really doesn't matter. All that mattered was the soul and the heart and one's faith. And we can imagine that some in that community, in that church, perhaps welcomed this heretical teaching. Because it would mean that you could go on your way and make money and work and not have to stand up to your guild. Just go along. No need to suffer rejection or the loss of income. What harm is a little idolatry and immorality? It doesn't hurt as long as we believe in Jesus, ask for his forgiveness. Don't want to make waves, right? We don't want to make Christians appear obstinate as a minority religion in this large Greco-Roman culture. Well, Paul did write in 1 Corinthians 8 that mature believers can eat food sacrificed to idols. As long as he understands that idols are not gods at all, and that because God declared all foods to be clean, one can eat with a clear conscience. And yet Paul gives a clear warning that believers not abuse this freedom, that they be sensitive to their fellow believers for whom eating such foods would be a violation of conscience. And so Paul is speaking of believers being careful with other believers and trying to uphold Christian freedom where appropriate. But I really don't think Paul's principle applies here. The situation in Thyatira is much more like Daniel and his three friends who endure great pressure to conform, to bow down to the idolatrous ways of Babylon, to adopt its paganism and yield to the superiority of its God. Eating food sacrificed to idols in many ways does seem less offensive to God than committing sexual immorality. 
But such eating in this context is the gateway into immorality. Doing so weakens one's resolve and opens way the doorway to compromise. Jezebel misapplies Christian freedom, masking the selfish desire to avoid conflict, rejection, and persecution. And we need to understand this in the context of a, of a broader scriptural pattern that we see over and over again that idolatry leads to immorality, leads to injustice, which perpetuates under an attitude of indifference. See, association with idol pagan feast in order to lure gain Believers would be far more prone to fall into sexual immorality and to fall away from the Lord who calls us to be holy. And the Lord calls this false prophetess Jezebel because she leads his people away much like the ancient queen Jezebel of, the, of Israel was ruthless, a committed and determined worshiper of Baal. Her idolatry and immorality led to grave injustice when she schemed against an innocent man, Naboth, recruiting scoundrels to falsely accuse him and cast stones to his brutal death. And we remember with divine poetic justice, Jezebel would be thrown to her own violent death from a tower at the command of Jehu, but not before she painted her face perhaps to seduce Jehu into immorality. And there was her daughter, Athaliah, who nearly destroyed David's line when he was married to the son of good King Jehoshaphat. And when her own son Ahaziah died, she took the throne and nearly killed the entire royal family of David, except for the her her heroism of those who preserved the baby Josiah Joash, who was hid for six years. In the history of God's people, idolatry and immorality go hand in hand and always lead to a destructive end. So what are the lies? What are the lies that are seducing God's people into sexual immorality in our own day? Well, one obvious first one for me is that it doesn't matter if you do porn not hurting anybody, that would be wrong. It's violating people made in God's image. Oftentimes, you are forced into this dangerous and reckless trade. And the mind and the hearts of those who observe and commit to this indulgence come away with warped expectations that negatively impact a God-honoring marriage. A second common lie today is that you can divorce your spouse if you're unhappy and free to marry another. Unhappiness, though, is a heart condition. Marriage requires work, and it's a good work. Now, the Bible makes provisions for divorce that meet a very high standard and only after significant effort has been made in time allotted for the offending party, given the opportunity to repent. A third lie of seduction in our own day is that you can be a gay Christian. 
genuine Christians? Do you struggle with unwanted, sinful desires? But nowhere does Scripture condone homosexual practice. It's universally condemned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the lie beneath the lie of this one and the others is that God just wants you to be happy and to go along with your desires and go along with the ways of the culture, that you don't need to struggle or strive with God's Spirit. It's not necessary for you to put your sin to death. But Scripture calls us to be holy, to please God, to deny ourselves, even when warped and twisted desires afflict our fallen bodies. Nowhere in God's Word is the gay Christian an identity that is acceptable to God. And like it, a fourth lie is the new one that you can be trans in Christian. This grievous ideology that leads to the severe destruction of young people who are all the more confused over what it means to be male and female as God has intended. And so for the good of our young people, for the good of our society, we must uphold a binary understanding of God's design for gender and sexuality. Paul writes to the Corinthians, a church that struggled with many of these issues. In chapter 6, he addresses the various abuses of the body, whether it's gluttony or sexual immorality and idolatry, and he speaks into that milieu of, of sin patterns to remind God's people that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We have been purchased by God, and we owe God our bodies. It does matter what we do in the flesh against the broader Greco-Roman understanding. And in that same passage of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks of adulterers and homosexual practitioners and those who participate with all kinds of other sins and says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God but then assures the church that such were some of you. Yet you have been washed and justified and sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is hope for those who repent, who come to Jesus to be cleansed, to be washed, and be purified from the ways of the world, the sin, and the devil. And I would offer here a final application on this point be reminded that Jesus gives very severe warning to those who would cause young, vulnerable people to stumble. In fact, it would be better for you to be, have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the bottom of the lake than to cause a little one to stumble. And there are many in our culture that are very intentionally seeking to deceive and groom and sway young people to adopt a rebellious alternative gender and identity. And this movement is infiltrating our various institutions in education, government, and media. There's a very determined agenda to normalize alternative and destructive lifestyles. And that agenda is equally determined to alienate those of us who are proponents of traditional morality in the biblical understanding of the family, marriage, and sexuality. 
So sadly, the spirit of Jezebel is alive and well. And the societal push for things, whether it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, terms that sound innocent enough, but are oftentimes code for advancing a worldview that is very much at odds with Judeo-Christian values. Because what they mean by diversity is more than racial diversity. It also means sexual diversity, the inclusion of sexual minorities. And by equity, they're not talking about equality, equality and equal opportunity, but rather a neo-Marxist vision of equal outcomes, not based on merit, but by on a range and a scale of predetermined ranks of oppression. There is a grave pretense for tolerance in our age and pressure for Christians to just be tolerant of things that maybe a generation ago would not be tolerated. And it's my concern that things will only get more perverse, more pervasive, more oppressive as these ideologies infiltrate government, education, corporate America, constantly changing the terms to bully people into compliance. And so we need to be wise and be aware of the spirit of Jezebel as it even comes into the church and would violate the order of creation and leave children and other vulnerable people even more vulnerable to abuse, to trafficking, to mental health problems and medical problems. You and I must take a stand and speak, even at the risk of being ridiculed, to protect the vulnerable who would be influenced to adopt a lifestyle that leads to destruction. So, we consider the danger of seduction in our age. The Lord also speaks in verses 21 and 20 to 23 of the discipline of seduction. Amazingly, the Lord gives Jezebel time to repent, which she squanders and refuses. And so the Lord says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Sometimes the Lord must rob someone of health to provoke repentance. The believers who follow her will suffer tribulation in the hopes of waking them from their stupor. But the hope for those who have been contaminated by immorality and idolatry is repentance. True faith must be vindicated by godly repentance. So I was teaching to Chinese pastors in a class online last week. We talked a lot about the marks of the church, and one of them is the practice of discipline. Sadly, many churches don't and are losing the marks of being a true church. Here, in our practice, when a member comes under discipline of the session, we are looking for what we call the fruit of repentance, which I would summarize as genuine, genuine contrition over sin, the desire for and hope for real forgiveness through Christ, and a resolve to turn from the sin by the power of the Spirit. And we must require nothing less of anyone who is steeped in grievous sin and contamination by the world. But in verse 23, the Lord begets more severe, striking Jezebel's children dead. Why? So that the churches may know 
that the Lord searches the heart and mind to give each one according to his works. Frequently throughout redemptive history and scripture, we see God even striking people dead to get the attention of the church who was wandering into idolatry and immorality. And he, God is determined to dis- discipline his people and save them from the tyranny of sin. It is the Lord who searches our hearts, who uproots our sin, who convicts us of sin, who rescues us from the trappings of sin. The one who will judge us and reward us according to our works. But of course, we know we are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith alone in Christ. And yet our faith is validated by the works that demonstrate godly character, humility, and an abiding trust in Christ. So we consider the danger of seduction, the discipline of seduction. In verses 24 and following, we see the Lord's deliverance from seduction. It is here that the Lord speaks to the rest of the believers in Thyatira, who were not holding to the teaching of Jezebel, who had not learned the deep things of Satan. Now, I offer here several observations. First, that the Lord is always faithful. As he was in the days of Elijah, he preserves for himself a remnant who has not bowed down to Baal. Secondly, what are the deep things of Satan? Well, in this context, it is likely... This is the likely claim of these heretics, that they are able to overcome temptation because they know and experience the deep things of Satan. But they are duped. They are deluded into believing their heresy by ignoring the Bible's prohibitions against defiling the body. They hold on to this false teaching that their soul can be pure and so reason that it doesn't matter what they do in the body. And so they are concluding that to conquer Satan, you must know him. To conquer sin, you must be close to it, familiar with it. You can master it by practicing it. And that is all deluded thinking that fails to understand and appreciate the deceitfulness of sin. You don't do sin. Sin does you. Practicing sin makes you a slave, not a master of sin. It does not make you able to overcome it. It makes you helpless to resist it. Thirdly, why does the Lord say not that he would not lay any other burden upon the church of Thyatira? Well, it appears to be a clear reference to the council of Acts 15, the first church council, where the Lord will lay no further burden on his people than restraining from sexual immorality and idolatry. In the letter from Acts 15, when the apostles send the sent a letter to the Gentiles exhorting them to refrain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and food, animals that have been strangled, and restrain from, refrain from consuming blood out of, deferential, out of deference to the conscientiousness of Jewish believers. And so these two categories, sexual immorality and idolatry cover a large host of sins that were so prominent in the ancient world. And our day is 
little different. And if we would remain pure and unspotted from the world, we would be wise to refrain, to avoid the trappings of sin that we find so prevalent in our own day. And in the final verses, 25 through 29, we see concluding exhortations and promises where the Lord says, only hold fast what you have until I come. Holding fast, clinging desperately to the promise and hope of the gospel, remaining faithful and not turning tail, retreating, or running away to withstand the pressures to conform to this world, to resist the wicked influences that would corrupt us into adopting its ways. That's what it means to hold fast. And the Lord speaks to the ones who conquer, who keeps his works until the end. The Lord promises to give authority over the nations. It is our hope and our great privilege to see all the nations gathered in, to see the nations converted, to see every tribe, tongue, language, and people group gathered around the great throne room at the final day. Yet would also be believers who judge the nations for sin and idolatry and rejection of the risen Christ. He says in verse 27, that he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, we are reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ is the judge of all the earth. Our Redeemer and our friend, the, our good shepherd, who came meek and mild in his first coming, will come a second time to judge the world in righteousness. And it's our calling to uphold his righteousness, to be his witnesses, to prepare the world for that great and awesome day of judgment to come. But the reward that the Lord offers, I believe, comes in verse 28. That as we endure, as we struggle, as we resist the seduction of our age, he promises in verse 28 to give us the morning star. What is the morning star? It could be the resurrection, pointing to the hope that we will be resurrected in body and soul into the likeness of Christ before the Lord. But I believe it means even, even pointing to Christ himself, that we will enjoy his presence for all eternity, that the great reward of the believer is to be in the Lord's presence, to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant, to be enraptured with the worship of God for all eternity, to be in the new heavens and the new earth, a world without sin, without darkness, without pain, where idolatry and temptation and seduction are gone forever. And so the promise is ours, that the great morning star will come to redeem us, to deliver us, to carry us away from this world of bondage and sin into the new heavens and the new earth and the Lord's glory. John writes in his first epistle, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all these things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, come not from the Father but from the world. All these things will pass away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
we indeed will face pressures to compromise our faith. In this idolatrous world that's growing in hostility towards God and His people, a world that cannot tolerate what we believe or practice and will try desperately to, to oppress us, to marginalize us, to seduce us into adopting its ways in rebellion against our Creator and Redeemer. May we persevere. May we trust in God and His promises. Cry out to Him in our distress. May we have ears to hear what His Spirit has to say to us through His Word to give us grace to obey, to hold fast, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And may we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who will deliver us from the seduction of our age and bring us home into his glorious presence forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you speak to us in a world of temptation and seduction, to give us encouragement, to give us hope, to give us grace to endure and to persevere. And I pray that you might give us grace and strength to be unspotted and unstained by the world, but to live as your witnesses, to find our joy and our satisfaction in you. May you be our strength, our delight, our hope as we enter into a new week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.